You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Amen. Love to worship with you. Uh, Sound great today. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4. While you're turning there, let me give you a quick wake-up call. Christmas is 11 weeks from today. 11 weeks from today, and yes, it falls on a Sunday. Um, So, I say that uh, to let you know that we would appreciate your prayers. We'll be making some final decisions this week uh, as to what our uh, holiday schedule will look like. I can uh, pretty well assure you that it will not be normal, Um, although I, I feel certain that I can say we will at least have at least two Christmas Eve services here on campus uh, which we've done now for the last several years, but uh, still a little uncertainty as to what we're going to do with that Christmas day. And one of the things that we need you to understand and uh, maybe extend us a little grace on is it takes a small army of volunteers to pull off a typical Sunday here at First Baptist Van Austin, as you can imagine. And so that becomes incredibly difficult when Christmas falls on a Sunday. So there are some things that we have to consider in that. And uh, I have a pretty good feeling that no matter what we determine to do, and no matter what the schedule looks like, some will inevitably be disappointed and think we probably should have done something different. But uh, I assure you, there will be an opportunity for worship on that day, okay? We're not going to just skip worship altogether, anything like that, but it may look a little bit different. So we'll be getting that schedule out to you fairly soon, but something for you to uh, certainly be thinking about. Galatians chapter 4, we are working our way through the book of Galatians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the churches in Galatia. And after his initial greeting, Paul issues a, uh, a passionate rebuke of the Galatian believers because they were being influenced by a group of Judaizers who were proclaiming a false gospel that was polluted, distorted by legalism. And in the first three chapters of the book, Uh, Paul seeks to persuade the Galatians uh, to abandon their desire to come under the Jewish law. But he now takes his argument in in kind of a new direction. Up to this point, his emphasis has mainly been on how justification comes through faith in Christ and not the works of the law. That's the essence uh, of this letter. But for much of the rest of the letter, Paul will demonstrate that true freedom not only comes through faith in Christ but that the Galatian believers' desire to come under the law is actually a choice of slavery. Paul shifts his focus to the the change in identity that lies at the very foundation of Christian freedom. In Christ, believers are sons and daughters of God. And Jace did a great job last week uh, bringing us into chapter 4 and looking at the rich gospel beauty of adoption. Uh, This is the reality that Jesus has accomplished through his death and resurrection. This has brought believers in Christ out of the slavery they endured, whether Jew or Gentile, into the freedom of divine sonship. And so to return to the law... Paul is making the point here very clearly, is a return to slavery. So God's redemptive plan goes far deeper than enabling believers to escape judgment. That's an ideology that is still prevalent in the church today. 
You got people sitting there thinking, well, I, you know, I made that profession of faith. I walked down the aisle. I shook the pastor's hand. I filled out a card. I got baptized, whatever. And so as long as I got my fire insurance, I'm good to go. The, the Christian life is so much more than that. It is so much more than a get-out-of-hell-free card. And uh, that's, that's really what he is getting at here. When God rescues us, he draws us into an intimate, loving relationship with himself. We are brought into his family. That's why that word adoption is so uh, critically important and so theologically rich. God's own spirit is given to us so that we might experientially know that we are truly entitled to call God Father. Father, and that he loves us as his children. That is the Christian's greatest privilege. The greatest privilege that we have. That's a common human tendency for us to try to do things that will increase our sense of self-worth or increase the appearance of our worth in the eyes of others. We see this magnified more so today than I guess at any other time because of the connectivity that we have through social media and those kinds of things. And I've talked to people who have literally found themselves becoming depressed because they feel like they're not living the same life that their friends are living. And so they see these images on, on Facebook or on Instagram or whatever social media platform you're on. And it's like, man, I wish I could spend all that time at the beach like my friends I wish I could do that or have that amazing experience. And th those are all good things. But I think we become disillusioned sometimes. And so we think that, man, if I can just you know, put forth this, uh, this image that I've kind of got it all together and everything, then people will find me more valuable. And the, the bad thing is that spills over into our relationship with the Lord. We feel like, man, if I could just do more, if I could just be better, if I could just be better than the average person on the street, then, then I'll, I'll have earned more of God's love and God's favor. So it's a common tendency. And so for these Galatian Christians, observing the law of Moses particularly seems to have been a way of attempting to make themselves better in the eyes of God and others. So the question that we need to continue to ask ourselves as we make our way through the book of Galatians and wrestling with this question is, what, what are ways that I am tempted to prove my worth to myself and others, and most importantly, to God? And you may have come to a place where you are firm in your belief that there was no other way for you to be saved than through faith in Jesus Christ. You, you pretty well wrapped your mind around the fact that there's no way you could earn your salvation. But I think what can happen is that we, we feel like moving forward, I've got to continue to somehow, some way, through my best efforts, prove to God that I am worthy of that salvation. It's like the kid that gets picked first on the playground in a game of kickball. And so there's this sudden pressure, you know, that first round draft pick. Man, I've got I've to live up to this. And so we get in this dangerous trap that I think was infiltrating the church even at Galatia there. And so he begins with this clear uh, description of their conversion from the worship of false gods uh, to the worship of the one true God. Uh, so Keegan read for us the last three verses that we're going to look at today, but we're going to actually back up to verse number 8. Jace brought us into uh, through verse number 7 last week, so let's pick it up in verse 8. We'll read down through at the end of the chapter. And notice the language that Paul uses right away in this new paragraph. He says, formerly. He's talking about 
your, your previous life. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved. He already starts right off using that language of slavery. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now, something's changed. Formerly, you were this, you were enslaved. But now that you have come to know God, and I love this next phrase, it's one of my favorite in all of Scripture, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So Paul is continuing to express a bit of frustration here. He's like, didn't I teach you anything? Didn't, didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't I train you up in understanding of the grace of God? And so he's, he's expressing this frustration. And so he says in verse 12, Brothers, I entreat you, come as I am, for I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? What has changed about our relationship is what Paul is saying. For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, these false teachers, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children... For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Then he gives us this Old Testament example. Picking it up in verse 21, he says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, that which is, is temporal, that is, which is of this world. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac... Are children of promise. But just as at the time that he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Dr. Russell Moore, who now leads uh, an initiative at Christianity Today, was uh, formerly the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He and his wife, uh, Maria, have adopted children. And he illustrates the folly of returning to our former life when he tells their story. And this is what he writes. He said, when my wife, Maria, 
and I at long last received the call that the legal process was over, we could return to Russia to pick up our sons, we found that their transition from the orphanage to our family was more difficult than we had supposed. He recalls, we dressed the boys in outfits that our parents had bought for them. We nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight to the terror of the two boys. They'd never seen the sun. They'd never felt the wind. They'd never heard the sound of a car door slamming or had the sensation of being carried along at 100 miles an hour down a road. I noticed that they were shaking and reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. And I whispered to the boys in that moment, if only you knew what's waiting for you. A home with a mommy and a daddy who love you and grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and playmates and, and McDonald's Happy Meals. But all they knew was the orphanage. It was filthy. But they had no other reference point. It was home. He went on to write, I want to see the orphanage one more time. When the boys are a little older, maybe 12 or 14, I, I plan to, to make that trip again with them. I want them to see and to feel where they came from. It's hard to imagine now what they'll think of it. I'm sure their eyes will widen as we walk up those cracking steps into that horror movie looking front door. They'll probably go limp inside, just like I did when they see all those abandoned toddlers peering out from the corners of the doors inside. Maybe they'll try to replay in their minds some of their earliest memories. I'm not sure what they'll think of the orphanage, but I'm quite sure they won't call it home. You see, when we turn from God and the gospel of grace, it's like returning to that orphanage. This passage is all about learning to live as God's children in the freedom of grace and in the love of the Father. And in these verses, Paul opens up his heart to his spiritual children, these Galatian believers whom he loves dearly. And so he speaks here as a shepherd and as a father and even uses the language of a gentle mother. He, he uses words like, brothers, I entreat you. I, I plead with you. I, I beg you. I'm perplexed by you. He, he, the, the language of a mother, my little children. He even references being, being, experiencing the anguish of childbirth. He'd been instrumental in birthing the, the church in Galatia. And now he's just, he's dumbfounded by the things that they're chasing after. So you sense this burden. And while up to this point, he's been pretty strong, pretty passionate, even referring to them as, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now he becomes a little more pastoral in his approach. And if you ever want to know what a pastor prays for his people or the, the church, the people that God has entrusted to his care, you look no further than Galatians chapter 4. There are a lot of things that I pray for you regularly, specific things, interceding for you. But if you were to just ask me, what are four things that you pray for, for our church family? I would say these four things would, would be on that list for sure. Notice number one, Paul's prayer. Father, show us how to walk in your grace. Show us how to walk in your grace. The first step of growth in the Christian life is to know your identity and learn to live in it. Learn to live in it. There's a lot being said about identity today. A lot of confusion about identity today. And I'm going to tell you something. There's as much confusion about our identity in the church as there is outside the church. It may not look exactly the same, 
We've got a lot of people within the church who don't really know who they are and what they have through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's why Paul reminds us of who we were formerly, verse number 8, and who we are now. But now, he says in verse number 9. So he's saying here, teach us that we are not slaves of religion. Paul uses that, that word enslaved again there, the, the same word that he used in, in chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, and that he used in, in chapter 4, verse 3 earlier, in verse 5, and verse 7. Do not go back to slavery. Don't go back to that. And he specifies really three issues uh, in that. He says, don't go back to the slavery of idols. Before you were a Christian, he says, you lived in bondage to false gods. Gods that aren't, in fact, gods. Turn from your idols to the living God. So the opposite of Christianity really fundamentally is not atheism, it's idolatry. And what we have to understand is that the root of all sin, your sin, my sin, is exchanging the glory of our creator God with some form of self-worship and created things. So it's easy for us as modern-day Christians to look at a text like this and go, I'm not into idol worship. Like, I've got no carved images sitting on my mantle. We don't bow down before any you know, stone images or anything like that. The truth is this. Anything, anything that steals our affection away, our, our passions, our priorities away from Almighty God is in some form or another idolatry. And it can be things that in and of themselves are good things good things, but we lose focus. That's why we consistently say here, we have to be so very careful. That's why the proverb says, guard your hearts, guard your hearts, because we know that what we become passionate about, the things that we love the most, will determine our priorities, and our priorities determine our path. Look no further than your checkbook ledger. Remember when we had checkbooks? Remember back in the day? Look look no further than than your bank statement. Look no further than your calendar. And look at the ways in which you spend your time and your resources. It will say a lot about you and what you value the most. And while we can easily look at a text like this and think, I'm not into idolatry. Really? Because I've got a pretty good suspicion that all of us at different times and in different seasons are prone toward some form of idolatry. That's why I can't recall who came up as Calvin or someone said, our hearts are all just little idol factories. That's what they are. And even though they are called gods here, Paul says they are not. An idol has no real existence for there is no God but one. And so we are prone to drift into idolatry. That's why in 1 John, John writes, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Love God supremely. I mean, it's pretty clear in the Ten Commandments, right? You should have no other gods before me. He says, don't go back to weak principles. I like the language that he uses here. Paul refers to the way of life that they left behind either referring to worldly way of life or even to demonic activity, which is likely what he means. So wrapped up in any form of idolatry is actually demonic activity. You see a reference to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul thinks that a return to this former way uh, of living is irrational. It's irrational. Don't go back to those things. 
He says, don't go back to religious slavery. He equates the false gods to this uh, religious system, keeping these rituals no better than paganism. Both pagan idolatry, keeping these laws are forms of slavery. They both keep you from Jesus. Trying to earn God's approval by external acts is slavery. Worshiping false gods is slavery. Christianity is not about being a slave to religion. It is about being a son and a daughter in relationship with Almighty God. To Almighty God. And so he clarifies. He says, Lord, teach us that we are children in relationship with the Father. This changes everything, doesn't it? Changes everything. It's not ritual. We're not earning righteousness. We are sons and daughters who are right with God because of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. We are already accepted. And so while we would say religion is largely external, a relationship is personal. Religion is, uh, is man-made. A relationship supernatural. Relationship means that we know God and are known by him. You, you talk to people who are committed to any of the various world religions that you might encounter out there, and you'll find among those world religions, it's a foreign concept to think of having a relationship with God. Most of them view God as some kind of a, a distant cosmic force of some sort or some sort of a, a deity who is detached from, from his creation and everything. And so it's all about trying to appease that God. Tipping the scales in my favor so that I'll find favor. with. Do you see the, the absolute fear that that creates in someone? Those of you who are parents, can you imagine saying to your kids, hey, I'll tell you what, as long as you perform at a certain level, as long as you maintain these grades, as long as you do this well on the athletic field, as long as you do this well in, in your musical pursuits or whatever it is, as long as, you can, as long as you can maintain this certain level of excellence and perform at this level, then you're good to go here. You can continue to eat at our table. You can continue to sleep in that bed. You can continue to have that room. But, in, but as soon as you drop below that line, you're out. You're out. That, that's horrific. And that's an extreme example, but do you realize that's how some people view their relationship with God somehow? I'm just not quite good at it. That's why we said in the earliest messages in this series, if our acceptance by God, our affection from God is determined by our performance for him, then we're prone to pride when we're doing well. And we feel like, man, Jesus, look at me compared to all these other people. I'm, I'm pretty good. Or it, 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 we're prone then to fear when we're not doing so well. And that's exactly what Paul's getting at here. This whole idea of, of adoption and, and, and being a part of the family of God. It, this is a contrast from religious bondage to a real dynamic relationship with Christ that is about knowing him personally and passionately and powerfully and progressively. Perseverance in faith functions as evidence that someone truly does know God. You ever say to someone, when, when they mention a person to you in a conversation, say, hey, do you know so-and-so? You ever find yourself saying, well, I don't know them, but I know of them? You ever say that? I know I do. I think that's how a lot of people would relate to God, if they were completely honest. I, I don't know Jesus personally. I don't, I don't feel like I know him intimately, but I know of him. 
I mean, I know enough of the biblical narrative to know that he was a great teacher, and he did some amazing miracles, and, and, and there's a lot to be admired about his, his ethics and morals and all those sorts of things. So, but beyond that, I, I can't really say that I know him. No, no, no. What Paul's getting at here is you can know. You can know God and be known by God. How freeing is that? How freeing is that? And then he says, secondly, Father, help us to treasure your word. Help us to treasure your word. Help us to preach it when it's difficult. That's no secret that the Apostle Paul endured a lot of hardship in the course of his ministry. He writes of this in other places. He talks about shipwreck and starvation and beatings and all of the different things that he endured. Paul, Paul was a worker. Paul was a worker. Paul was a missionary. Paul pressed on in spite of sickness. Now, we don't know in this particular section here specifically with certainty what it was that he was talking about. Paul's thorn in the flesh that he references a lot of scholars have been speculating about this for a long time. Some would say it was an infection of some sort. Some would say malaria from the swamps of Pamphylia. Some would say a, a fever from hiking in the Galatian mountains. Uh, many, because of this text particularly, would say it was something related to his eyesight. That's why he references their, their willingness uh, and their blessedness and in the way that they accepted him to even gouge out their own eyes, as it were, to, to give their eyes to him. And, and so uh, he also writes, if you continue to read here in Galatians chapter 6, I think it is in verse 1, he talks about writing with his own hand in large letters. So that would, that would cause some people to say, well, it has something to do with his eyesight. We, we don't know specifically what it was. But whatever the problem was, it was a big problem and it was not a common cold. Okay, We, we can pretty well know that. It was something that, that burdened him for, for his entire ministry in some form or another. Uh, it seems to have been something that was unsightly, something that could be seen. Uh, you know, I, most of you know I'm a, I'm a diabetic. I wear an insulin pump. I've been a diabetic since I was 30 years old, so for 26 years now. And most people, when they find out I'm a diabetic, they're like, no way. And I, I want to just jokingly say to them, what did you expect? Like a third arm or something? I don't, I don't know what you, I don't know what you, you know, were envisioning, you know. But I think this was something that you could probably see in Paul. Okay, I, I'm not certain about that, but uh, I, I think there's, there's reason for us to believe that. Whatever it was, it was a big problem. Uh, probably disfigured him in some way. He says, it was a trial to you. And so he had experienced their acceptance, their love in spite of this. And, and yet now he's experiencing the pain of a form of betrayal. He's saying, what, what is it that has flipped the script here? I, I've experienced this blessedness and this, the, the, this warmth and this love from you, but now it appears you're, you're turning your backs. What happened to the blessing I felt? Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Why the enemy? He told them that they were turning from the gospel by, by, by their legalism. And so Paul continued proclaiming the truth even when it wasn't easy. Paul says, I'm bringing you this truth because I love you. Why am I your enemy? And as I was preparing for this week's message, I was reminded afresh and anew that if we preachers and teachers are, are doing our job in such a way that we will ultimately honor and glorify God, then it's not always going to be easy. Some truth is going to make us uncomfortable. It will confront us. It will challenge us. 
And so Paul's saying, in my effort to be faithful to the truth, don't attack the messenger. That'd be like getting mad at your mail carrier because they continue to bring you a water bill every month. I mean, Paul's saying, I, I, I'm, just, I'm just stating the truth here. It's all about faithfulness to the word of God, period. Why? Because that's how God will judge his teachers and preachers. Faithfulness, not flashiness, not fame. But sometimes you just got to hear the hard truth. and Hopefully you hear it in love, with the love that it's, that it's intended. And then his third prayer here is this. Father, make us like your son. Make us like your son. That, that phrase, made much of, it's also translated zeal. Zeal is good, he says, if it's accompanied by truth. You see, the false teachers, he says in contrast, they were zealous, but to, zealous to shut you out. That, that is, to exclude you from God's people. They want to circumcise you. They want to make you slaves to the, to the, to the law. But zeal is great if it's directed uh, in the right object, if it's placed in the right object. So what is the good purpose that Paul says here for which we are to be zealous? We find in that next verse, verse 19, that Christ is formed in you. That's the purpose. This is zeal. The metaphor here is striking. Paul, as a man, is saying it's as if I'm in labor. I am agonizing in pain over you Galatians. That's how much I love you. And he longs for Christ to be formed in them. To be formed in them. That, that word formed in, that, that phrase, it actually comes from the Greek word morphoro. And, and it's, to, it's to be changed from the inside out. It's the same word from which we get metamorphosis. It's a transformation. And so until you take the shape of Christ, he says, same picture in Galatians chapter 2 that we saw earlier. Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But this is the freedom that Paul is talking about. It's not an external transformation. It's, it's not improving your behavior externally. It is internal transformation. In fact, that's why he consistently uses the language of putting your flesh to death. Putting your flesh to death. Put on. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. It's why we study the word of God here. It's why we prioritize it. Because that is what will transform us from the inside out. That we, that we will be shaped and formed into the image of Jesus Christ. That is why we don't come here and gather so that you can get Mike's tips on how to live a good life in 2022. Okay, That's not our next series. I can guarantee you. Okay, That's, that's not what you need. Okay? You need the Word, and I need the Word. We need to be shaped by the Word. And so just rules and law and behavior tips cannot change the heart. It might change how someone dresses or whether they choose to dance or not <laughs> or whatever, but you haven't changed anything. There are no shortcuts. Growth is a slow process. It's the Word day by day slowly changing us, zeal, to, to be like Christ and to help others become like Christ. That's why our very mission as a church is to lead people on a life-transforming journey to become fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. Of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, these false teachers, they want to make you like them. They want to make you like them. And so the only time I would echo what Paul says as it relates to himself is follow me, but only 
only follow me as I follow Christ. Trust me, there are some things about Mike Lovely that you do not want to emulate. There are things about me that, that you, you don't want to do that. <laughs> I struggle with sin daily just like you do. I struggle with doubt just like you do. I struggle with fear just like you do. So only follow me as I follow Christ. And that's what Paul was so passionate about here. And then finally, number four. He says, Father, help us rejoice in your salvation. And he uses this Old Testament story to drive home the, the previous points about not living in uh, slavery under the Mosaic law. He urges them to understand God's salvation as a miracle. To understand their spiritual freedom and to rejoice in it. And so he makes it clear that before salvation you were slaves. Slaves to sin, slaves to the law. And if you're not familiar with the Old Testament text that he's recalling here, uh, then, then let me refresh you, your memory, maybe bring you up to speed. Abraham and Sarah, Abraham's a patriarch, uh, Abraham and Sarah couldn't produce a child. She was barren. They worried. And so Sarah says, take Hagar, your servant. She was a servant of Abraham. So Abraham and Hagar have a child. That, that child's name was Ishmael. And so you've got a, a slave woman, Hagar, and a slave child, Ishmael. In Genesis chapter 17, God says, no, I'm going to give you a child. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't try to do this your own way, in a way that you can wrap your minds around, in a way that you can understand. No, I'm going to give you a child, the child of promise. That's Isaac. If you know the story, you know that, that Sarah was, was found to be with child. That's not all that unusual, except for the fact that she was 90 years old and her husband was 100. And we had a hard time wrapping our minds around the fact that I was 44 and my wife was 40, okay? I mean, it's incredible. And the point he's making here is you're going to have a child. He will carry on your line. Kings will come from her, and it's going to be a miraculous fulfillment of this promise. So you have two women, Sarah and Hagar. You have two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, one born by natural means, man-made, we might say, in a sense. That represents slavery to religion. I'll do it my way. I'll earn my way. I'll earn my keep. I'll earn your favor. It's a lack of trust in God, ultimately. One son is born by a supernatural miracle. A supernatural miracle. So he says the means of salvation is that we're born of the Spirit. What he's saying is we couldn't keep the law. We couldn't. But we were born by the Spirit. That's what we read in verses 28 through 31. Isaac's birth is supernatural. No other explanation for his birth. We are Isaac's, is what Paul is writing to these Galatian believers. We don't have a natural birth. We have a supernatural birth. We are children of the Father by virtue of the new birth. And so while the law was trying to be our own savior, like Abraham was trying to produce his own child on his own, the gospel is God giving us, saving us through a miracle. A miracle. It's what Jesus talked of in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Born again. He's like, what? Wait, how, how, is, how can this be? 
Do I enter a second time into my mother's womb? No, 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 no. It's, it's a miraculous birth. It's a rebirth. That's the miracle. A Christian is a walking miracle, is what Paul is saying here. This goes all the way back to, to chapter 3, verse number 2. You, you don't need more rules. You need a new heart. You need a new heart. Christianity is not behavior modification. That's why we don't preach moralism. We preach and teach a new birth through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Full stop. Period. That's it. And if we were left to try to somehow, some way, be good enough to ultimately earn God's favor, it's not going to happen. It's impossible. It's an exercise in futility. And then he tells us as he closes here of the implications of that salvation. Do not live for earthly possessions. He says this present Jerusalem. He's talking about the temporal. This is not our goal, this city on earth. We have an inheritance. Live for something else in your short life. Namely, advancing the kingdom. Live for your heavenly home. And I would just tell you this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that's your testimony, is one of faith in Jesus Christ, you should not feel all that comfortable in this world. You should feel like you're made, you should have a longing for something else. That's why when we preach through 1 Peter, what did we call that series of messages? Embassy living. We're just here temporarily representing the king of another kingdom. That's embassy living. And so there are going to be days, there are going to be times, and we see it more and more in the times in which we live, where we should go, you know what? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I'm just passing through. That's what Paul's getting at. We are to live for that which is eternal. For we have no lasting city. Because we are God's children, he says, don't go back. Don't go back to the orphanage because you're free. Rejoice and live in that grace. And so let me close this morning by challenging you to pray these things this week. Pray these things today. Father, help me to walk in your grace, not as a slave to religion. Father, help me to treasure your word, to proclaim it when it's difficult, to receive it when it's not popular. Father, make me like your son, to be like Jesus Christ, and use me to help others become like Jesus Christ. Father, help us to rejoice in your salvation, to see that we are children of promise, of the spirit of freedom. That's a picture of maturity, of growing in amazing grace. Remind yourself daily of the awfulness of slavery and the wonder of God's salvation. Don't go back to slavery. Don't go back to the orphanage. Late in his life, John Newton penned the words of amazing grace. He said this, my memory is almost gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. If we could bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment as we enter into a time of...
decision, time of response. I have to wonder and challenge you with what you will do with what God is saying to us today through his word and by his Holy Spirit. Will you choose to leave here today having just sat through another sermon? Or will you choose in every way to apply it to your life? Maybe you're someone who needs to ask yourself, are there, are there any things that I'm, I, I'm given to in idolatry? Anything that I'm pursuing passionately above and, and beyond somehow my pursuit of, of God? Am I trusting in any way, any shape or form, my effort, my righteousness in order to earn favor with God? Or are you walking in the freedom that is found in your sonship through your adoption, made possible through the finished work of Jesus Christ? Can you truthfully say today that you know Jesus and that it's a joy for you to be known by him? Or would you have to honestly say today, I know of him, but I don't really know him. If you're here today and you've never turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, can I, like the Apostle Paul, plead with you to take that step of faith? It's as simple as acknowledging that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and that you, on your best day, can't save yourself. And you could say, with John Newton even, I know this, I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior who makes it possible for me to be accepted and loved by Almighty God. Father, thank you for your word today. Lord, I thank you. Thank you for the provision that you have made on our behalf through the redemptive work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, it's my prayer today that we would be gripped with the thought that we are no longer slaves, we're free in you. Help us, Lord, to walk in relationship with you as we strive in every way to honor and glorify you with our lives. We love you. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.